You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As we turn our attention to Genesis chapter 1 again, I want to direct you specifically to verse 20. We're going to spend the next few weeks discussing what occurs here on day 6. What you find here is Genesis chapter 1 wraps up the... Um, the narrative sense of how God creates. And then we come back in Genesis 2. Uh, Moses, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, brings us back specifically in more detail about what happens on day 6. Um, so chapter 2 goes into uh, day 7 with God's rest, but then it comes back to exactly how day 6 unfolded. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at um, God's instruction and what God does on day 6. There's a lot of implications for us. Um, God has a lot to say about um, our understanding of marriage, our understanding of parenting, our understanding of work, our understanding of uh, biblical manhood and womanhood and the roles that they accomplish to complement each other. And so a lot of um, of treasures that are contained here um, in, in this chapter. And so we want to glean as much of it as we can. And so we're going to camp out here for the next few weeks. It says in verse 20, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. We saw last week that on days two, three, and four, God begins to fill that, that, that empty creation that he started on day one, that the earth was without form and void. And so God works very intentionally to provide form and filling to his creation. On day two, God created the atmosphere. He separated the waters from above and the waters below, creating a breathable space for life to inhabit. On day three, God created the dry land and the plants. He gave uh, specific boundaries for where his creatures would eventually end up in the creative week. And so he separates the dry land from the oceans and the seas and the lakes and the streams. And then on day four, God created the celestial bodies. 
Um, and we talked about how significant that is for us and how important those things are for us that uh, through the celestial bodies, through the sun and the moon, God gives us day and night. God uh, orchestrates our sleep patterns and our work patterns. God uh, gives continuity and stability to our understanding of the universe. We can count on seasons and days and years, and that's so important for how we structure our crops, how we survive based on that predictability of knowing when cold seasons are coming and warm seasons are coming, that God has ordained those things to happen and that it allows us to trust in him for provision because of that stability that we see in God's creation. And we're, we're encouraged because even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of God's creation not being very good anymore because it's marred with sin, and we know Romans 8 says that creation waits for that day when it gets fixed, that God promises Noah and his family, even in the midst of things falling apart around you, and you're going to see that progress You go from Noah all through the Bible and then up to where we are today. We continue to see sin taint God's creation. God gives assurance to Noah and his family. The seasons, the days, the years, they're going to continue. You don't have to worry about celestial bodies breaking down. You don't have to worry about any type of cosmic catastrophe happening that would throw this stuff off kilter. That you can be assured that God is going to continue to do these things. That he's going to continue to be Lord over the cosmos. And that gives us trust in him for continued provision for us. Separation uh, for regulation, for illumination, God gives light upon the earth. We said that ultimately creation leads us to view ourselves properly, that we see how small we are and insignificant we are. Um, That that the psalmist says, who is man that you'd be mindful of him? And, And the challenge there is not that we should demand that God care about us more. The question is, why does God care about us at all? And yet knowing that God does care very deeply for us and that he has, before the foundations of the world, been planning our future for us. Which brings us now to God creating life. God creating life here on days five and six. Now we talk about plant life and plants being living organisms, but uh, according to the the Israelite understanding of life, plants would not fall into that category. They're, they're, um, They're not... Beings, they're not creatures that move around, uh, they're stationary, they don't, they don't fill the, the qualifications of life that we think about when we think of the animals. And so God begins to create life as we know it on day five. On day five, God creates the creatures for the sea and the sky, if you're taking notes. God creates creatures for the sea and for the sky. In creating life, God creates with life being able to self-sustain itself, that Um, These creatures that God creates, they're able to to feed themselves and and get drink for themselves. They sustain themselves. Now, we know that the New Testament teaches that the entire universe is held together because Christ sustains it. But through life, God has has given the ability to self-sustain, to self-repair. Aren't we so thankful that God has created us in such a way where our body heals itself, that Uh, At times, we have to bring in the doctor to assist in that. But for the most part, the injuries that we experience, the the health challenges that we experience, a lot of that is is something that our body attacks and fights and heals on its own. And that's that's a a testimony to God's great design for us. And then the self-producing aspect of life, that, that God has created all of life with the ability to reproduce, that when God created, he never intended for that to be it and that be all of it. That God gave every single life form the, the, the command and the admonition to reproduce itself after its kind. 
God begins that on day five with the creatures for the sea and the sky. These first living creatures were created in subjection to God. In Psalm 104, Psalm 104, verses 24 through 31. O Lord, how manifold are your works, and wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God, which I have being, while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. These beings, these creatures are in complete submission to God. They rely on him for everything. They rely on him for their food and for their provision and for their life, for their sustaining ability. Some things to note in the way that it's laid out here in Genesis chapter 1. First of all, the birds were created to fly. That's significant because in talking about evolution and refuting evolution, evolution would teach that these animals had to learn the ability to fly. They had to develop the ability to fly. And yet what we find here is that God created birds from the very beginning with that ability. Secondly, the great sea creatures. There's, there's specific attention given to the great sea creatures that God creates. It says in verse 20, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And so Moses seems to single out this concept of the great sea creatures, and that's significant. It may be mentioned there because it counteracts some of the false religions, again, that Israel was about to walk into in the land of Canaan. Uh, there was the belief system there that there was an antagonistic serpent god that tried to work against the god that had created everything else. And so by singling this out, Moses is saying God has created everything. God has created everything, including the great sea creatures. Now, I'm a big uh, conspiracy theorist guy. Like I like to believe that, that there are... Uh, Bigfoot, that there is the Loch Ness Monster. There's all kinds of stuff that we haven't explored and discovered in the ocean. And there's a lot of speculation here that um, because it's so consistent to see some of these, these great sea creatures in, um, in a lot of the historical things that we find from different cultures, continuity there, dragons and sea serpents, that it's very possible that they did exist, that they were there present when God first created things. And, and they're shown to be in subjection to God. That they were not to be worshipped, they were not to be adored, that they were not to be deified as some of these other nations were doing. That there was no creature in the sea that God answered to or that God had to battle. That they originated through God's creative work. And I believe Moses singles that out specifically. Not so much for us because we're not tempted to worship sea serpents today, at least in our context I believe today. 
But again, knowing the original context, Israel was going into a land where other gods were being worshipped. And Moses signifies this right here and says, we don't worship anything but God because God has created everything. And that has relevance for those in our church that may leave one day to go overseas to another nation, to another culture where they are worshiping false gods. False gods that resemble creation, resemble great uh, features and forces of creation that were mindful of, of God's creative week and how everything submits to God. The control that God demonstrates over his creatures reminds us of the control that he has over all things. Look what Job says in Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12, verse 7, But ask the beast, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job reminds his friends, he says, look, if we need to learn about God's control over our life, let us simply look at God's control over everything in creation. He says we can learn by simply watching how God controls every aspect of creation, that every aspect of creation is in subjection to him. How can we doubt God's control over our own life? We read Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for good to those that love him, but it's very easy to doubt that that's really going to happen. And Job references creation and says to reinforce those promises, to reinforce your belief that God is in control, look no further than creation around you. Look at God's control over creation and know that if he's in control of the great sea creatures, that he's certainly in control of your life as well. Jesus references this. If God is going to provide food for the smallest forms of creation, the the invaluable pieces of creation... How much more will he provide food and clothing for you? Creation is always used in Scripture as a teaching tool, as a reminder, as a reinforcement for God's own goodness in our life. And we see that here in day five as God creates these sea creatures and these uh, creatures of the sky, the birds. On day six, in your notes, God creates creatures for the dry land. God creates creatures for the dry land. We see that God creates the, the creeping things. Some of us may regret that he, that he did that. Um, God creates everything that moves upon the dry land. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Uh, kind of breaking it up in the terms that an Israelite might view the animal kingdom. Obviously, at this point... He's not going to break it down in the way that our science books break it down today. But for an Israelite, kind of breaking it down, there was the animals that were considered the livestock, the the sheep and the cattle, those that they used for their resources. Creeping things encompasses a whole uh, large amount of of creatures. And then the wild beasts, the lions, the tigers, the elephants, the things that that were considered wild animals, things that weren't uh, drawn together for flocks and for herds, but the animals that were just allowed to roam Moses reminds the Israelites that all of these things have been created by God. And and this is true for all the the microscopic animals that even the Israelites at that time wouldn't have known about. Um, We talked last week about the grandeur of 
of the celestial bodies and how there are um, really, to our minds, infinite amount of stars and planets and galaxies that are out there. And, and we said if for no other purpose, God simply creates that way to remind us of how big he is, of how big and, and um, significantly different than us he is. But as we, as we look at the, the sea creatures and the, and the creatures of this earth, they're no less um, a testimony to God's grandeur as well. As we think about the, the tiny microscopic things that encompass um, the, the lakes and the streams. I mean, you can you can pull a, a small amount of water out of a lake and um, spend all kinds of time exhausting the amount of living things that are contained in that water. In the same way that the stars testify to God's big, uh, bigness and, and and size, so too does the, the the creation of these creatures. Just the amount and the uh, the intricacy and detail of God's creation. We see that both in the sea creatures and the the dry land creatures. While animals share some likeness with humans, we are eternally separated by our differences. And so I challenge you to to discuss this and dialogue about this a little bit today. The the differences between God's dry land animals versus the the, the man and woman that God creates. And there are differences. There There are similarities. There are likenesses, right? We both breathe oxygen. God gives us the same type of food. There's similarities. Uh, we're warm-blooded. We have hair. There's, there's, there's similarities that are there. But there's some drastic differences that exist as well. Mankind physically walks upright. He's mentally able to communicate in a sophisticated manner. Now, we know that some animals communicate with each other, that they have a, a form of language, a form of communication, but obviously nothing to the, to the sophistication that mankind experiences. Spiritually as well, we can know God and commune with him. There's nothing in Scripture that even hints at the fact that any other aspect of creation has a relationship with the Creator. That that, that necessarily differentiates us from all the other animals, all the other creatures. The, the privilege that God has bestowed upon us as male and female, the opportunity to commune with him, to be conscious of him, to be able to communicate with him, not just bouncing sounds back to each other like some of the animals would do, but actually being able to communicate in an in-depth manner with each other and with our Heavenly Father. That's a privilege bestowed upon mankind that the rest of creation does not enjoy. While all of creation flows from a divine plan, we see that God specifically demonstrates a thought process behind mankind. So it's not to say that, that God just got together and, and started creating things on a whim, Right, All of creation was planned out, but God demonstrates a specific plan for mankind. Because as each day rolls along, we just see God creating, God creating, God creating, God creating. And then verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's, there's communication there that we would say um, is probably a picture there of the Trinity communicating. The, the pluralness there is the Trinity communicating, the, the Son, the Father, the Spirit. All three having a plan in the creation, a place in the creation, a purpose in the creation. All three having a, a role to play in the salvation of man. Communication there, let us do this together. Let us do this together. Make man in our image. Man created in the image of God. How are we different from the animals? How are we specifically different from the animals? Number one in your notes, we are separated in our essence. 
We are separated in our essence. Man is self-conscious. He's morally conscious. He's conscious of others. And he's conscious of God. We're separated in our essence. Man is self-conscious, morally conscious. He's conscious of others and he's conscious of God. These are privileges that are not given to God's other creatures. We're self-conscious about who we are before God. We're self-conscious of God. We're self-conscious of those around us and, and the needs of those around us. We're morally conscious knowing the difference between right and wrong. Secondly, we're separated in our value. We're separated in value. And this is a, a line that gets blurred sometimes for those that, that really enjoy God's creatures, that really have a love for the animal kingdom. Oftentimes the animal kingdom can be elevated too high in the lives of some of those individuals where the, the difference in value gets very blurred. But in Scripture it's very clear that God places far more value on humankind than he does on any of his animal kingdom. In Genesis 9, moving ahead in the, in the Genesis account, after the flood in Genesis 9, verse 5, God speaking with Noah and his family, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There's significance there that God distinguishes mankind and the responsibility to not take mankind's life and the responsibility that comes if you do. And it's based on man being created in God's image. James chapter 3, this has ramifications not just in that we're not to take the life of other humans, but in James chapter 3 verse 9, talking about our tongue and the responsibility to tame our tongue, it says in verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The implication there is that it's, it's what's wrong with the cursing is that it's a, an individual. People are being cursed and they're made in the likeness of God. So not only is it damaging and, and wrong to take the life of someone who's created in God's image. It's using our tongue to destroy someone who's made in God's image. That's, that's, that's seen through the form of gossip, slander, things that, that are regularly tolerated in our life. We talk bad about someone. We, we demean someone. We build ourselves up in the presence of others in conversations at work at the sacrifice of somebody else. And God says it shouldn't be that way shouldn't be that way. Individuals, people that are around you are made in God's image. They have value, value that's placed there because of how God created them. The implication there is that we're under God, so we're not to the level of God, but we are above animals. And we still possess this image of God after the fall. Some people would, would try to argue that man loses the image of God after Adam and Eve sinned, that that image is forfeited. And yet we see both of these instructions in Genesis 9 and James 3 take place after the fall. And so there's some semblance of image of God that still exists. And we're going to talk in a minute that that image is not how it was originally created, that being created in God's image has been tainted because of sin. 
But Scripture indicates that the image of God within mankind is still there, still present, because of the accountability for taking man's life and for the accountability of, of defaming somebody with your tongue. It says implications for us were to show the same dignity to every human being we encounter. Understanding that every single individual is created in God's image, it shapes and changes how we view people, how we treat people, or it at least ought to do that. When we truly understand that people around us, people that, that obviously we love, but then those that we're prone to have to fight to love, the ones that aren't easily lovable, the ones that, that um, seem to instigate our flesh, they're created in God's image. They have value. And we're to demonstrate that value in the way that we treat them, the way that we talk about them, the way that we serve them. This has all kinds of implications, uh, gender implications, racial implications, that all are created in God's image, all deserve the same value and dignity because of the value that God places upon them. We're separated in our essence and our value, and then third, we're separated in our purpose. We're separated in our purpose. We're separated in our purpose, and this has, this has big implications for us as believers today, recognizing what God created us to be. What we find here in Genesis 1 is that man is established as God's earthly presence. God has established man to be his earthly presence. Now, this doesn't resonate with us the same way that it would have for Israel. But in that time, it was very common for rulers, for monarchs, to set up images of themselves in other lands. And those images were an outward sign to everybody else that this place is controlled by that monarch, by that ruler. And so they would set up essentially idols, images of themselves, and they would place them in these foreign lands. And it served as a visual reminder, this is controlled by somebody who's not presently here. But his authority still counts here. His, his kingdom is ruled from a separate place, but his presence is here. And it was signified through that. On top of that, a lot of times these pharaohs and these other monarchs, they were considered to be the image of the God that the people were worshiping. They would call themselves that image of God. They were set up in that way, so they became an earthly presence for the God that everybody worshiped. And then they would set their image up in other places as a visual reminder of who was in charge, of whose authority everybody submitted to. It's in that context that Moses, that God communicates to the Israelites through Genesis, communicates to us today, that man was created in the image of God. That he serves as a visual reminder to all of creation, to all of the spiritual world, angels, demons, Satan, we are established here as a representation that God is in control. That's not something given to any other part of the animal kingdom. We're considered his vice regents. We act on his behalf. Man is set up as the ruler of earth under the sovereignty of God. I don't want to overemphasize this, that, that we're given the authority to rule this earth, but I don't want to minimize it either. Because I'm afraid that when we minimize it, we, we fail to see our responsibility. But in Psalms chapter 8, Psalms 
Psalms chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? We've talked about that. The, the implication when we see creation is why does God care about man? And then the very next phrase, it's not that God doesn't just care about man, it's that God has elevated man to a, a, a very high status. Look what it says in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalms 115 Again, the idea that God has given the earth to mankind. Psalm one fifteen sixteen, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. This has big implications for the, the commands that God gives to Israel that are, that are still for us. God tells Israel, don't make a graven image. He says, don't try to set up the image of God. Now, we, we've heard that, we've understood that, don't make an idol, don't make a god. But the implication for why is because we are the image of God. God has established us as the image of God. Don't try to elevate any other portion of creation to that status. Think about it, all these other idols that, that the, the, these people would have worshipped at that time that, that still get worshipped in other areas of the world today. It's an elevation of creation, Different forms of animals, different combinations of animals that are considered to be images of God. And God says, that's not the image of God. You are the image of God. And because we're all created in the image of God, none of us deserve worship from each other, right? So even those that would worship an individual, worship a man, those that would bow down to a statue of Buddha or any other individual, they don't have the right to be worshipped because they, as the image of God, are just as much as we are the image of God. God says, don't make graven images. Don't try to make images of God. You've been created as the image of God. Don't worship the creation. You're over the creation. Animals have been placed under the rule and authority of man. Deuteronomy 4. Again, this is set in the context of Israel going into the promised land. Verse 15 Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Basically, because God is spirit, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. We can read that and say, man, that's great for them. For whatever reason, they had a problem worshiping creation. 
but that doesn't apply to us today, and yet it does. Every sin that you're going to struggle with this week, whatever form that takes, every sin that you struggle with this week is, is rooted in some aspect of creation being elevated to a superior status than God. Everything. You may not be tempted to bow down to something this week physically, but all of us, when we submit to sin this week, are bowing down to some aspect of creation that we are treasuring more than Jesus Christ. And the same commands here given to Israel apply to us, that we're to subject ourselves to no aspect of creation, that Christ deserves our worship, that he deserves our delight and our enjoyment, and that everything that's been given to us is simply a tool to be used to enjoy him forever. That any time we elevate creation over him, it becomes sin. And every sin that we struggle with this week will be an aspect of us elevating creation higher than it deserves to be. Creation has been placed under the authority of man, according to Scripture. We don't submit to it. It submits to us. Next in your notes, what does the image of God mean then? So we've talked about how the image of God separates us from animals, but specifically, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? An image is simply a representation or a resemblance of the one that it pictures. I'm going to give you three ways that the image of God or three uh, meanings for the image of God for us. Number one, resemblance. Now, Scripture's not real clear about the image of God, so we have to make some inferences based on surrounding passages. But number one, we see that the image of God means that there's resemblance, man's similarities to God. Man's similarities to God. Man is gifted with similar attributes that God possesses perfectly. Okay, so we're, we're an image, we're a representation of God, which means we're not God, right? Like he's the perfect version of everything, but in creating us in his image, we do become a representation where there are similarities. And God has created us as human beings with similar attributes. We call those communicable attributes, things that we share with God. Now, there are things about God that we do not share. There are things that totally make him God and us human. But we see pieces and glimpses of his attributes in our own life, right? God possesses all knowledge. He's all-knowing, and yet God gives us the ability to know things and to increase in our knowledge. God is all love. He is the supreme lover, and yet God has given us the capacity to love. Not just based on feelings and emotions that we have for the opposite sex, but he has given us the capacity to love those that are in need. And to put their needs above our own needs. God has created us with, with other attributes that are very similar to his. Humility, holiness, goodness, truth, wisdom, justice. These are things that we value. These are things that we possess as human beings. These are things that are, that are seen perfectly in God. But as God creates us in his image, he bestows these type of things to us. That we then reflect back to him. We become a, a representation for who God is. I mean, we talked about the heavens declare the glory of God. There are some things that the heavens do not declare about God, right? General revelation, what can be known about God through creation is limited. It's limited. And so God reveals himself through his word, but he reveals himself as well through mankind. There are things about God, things about God that we get glimpses of when we interact with each other. 
Things that we can look forward to experiencing in its fullest when Christ comes back and we get to be with him forever. Resemblance, man's similarities to God. We reflect things about God that are not known through creation. We're to mirror or reflect the character of God. Although God is spirit, God creates us with physical capabilities that reflect how he operates. Let me say that again. Although God is spirit, he creates us with physical capabilities that reflect how he operates. Psalm 94.9 is an example of this. There's passages in scripture that talk about God hearing, God seeing, God speaking, God smelling. Now we know God is spirit. Now we have to differentiate between the God-man, Christ, coming with a physical body. But when we talk about Yahweh in general, God does not have, to, to our knowledge, eyes and ears and a nose. He doesn't have a mouth. He's a spirit being. He doesn't have a physical body. And yet God creates us this way so that we can understand speaking and hearing and smelling. He creates us with physical bodies as an image of who he is and then shows that he shares those qualities with us. He's spirit, and yet he gives us physical capabilities to understand how he operates. Although we possess physical bodies, we also share a similar spiritual makeup. So God is spirit, and he has instilled a spirit within us, right? It's not completely disconnected from our bodies, but none of us would say that our body is who we are. When we go to funerals, it's not uncommon to hear people say, well, that's, that's not Granny anymore. That's not Papa. Papa's with Jesus. That's not Papa. That's just his body. We can be guilty of disconnecting it too much because that body still has value. Jesus died on the cross and raised from the dead so that that body would be raised again one day. So it's not just don't discount that and say, man, Papa's done with that body. Papa's in heaven with Jesus. He doesn't need that anymore. He still needs it. He is still longing and waiting for it, the Bible tells us. He looks forward to the day that Jesus comes back and he gets that body back. But our bodies aren't the all-encompassing description of who we are. We're spiritual beings and we're indwelt by our spirit. Our spirits will go to be with Jesus if we die before Jesus comes back. Some of us will be privileged to where our spirits and bodies don't ever get separated. And we're just instantaneously changed and our spirit will always indwell a glorified body moving forward. We're physical bodies, but we're also spiritual beings, and we share that in common with God. Something different than the animal kingdom, right? There's no indication in Scripture that animals possess a soul that is going to be present for eternity. I know some people want to believe that, that when they get to heaven, some of these endearing pets that they've enjoyed will be there as well, and that may be the case, but there's no indication in Scripture that's something that's, that's designated for mankind, and I believe it's because we're created in the image of God. Number two, relationship. Man's capacity for community. Relationship. Being created in the image of God demands that we live in community. Relationship. This is another aspect that separates us from the animal kingdom. We're given the great privilege of enjoying relationship with God. We can communicate with God. We can enjoy God. That's something that animals don't do. The fact that the Trinity is viewed as being an eternal relationship demands that humans have relationship. We can't really be created in God's image if God had only created one human being. 
Because the Trinity is pictured as being in community, the perfect community, the perfect relationship. And so for God to create in his image, he has to create a being that has the capacity for relationship. Now, this is where Adam's capacity for relationship demanded Eve. Okay, so this is where when God looks at Adam, he creates man and he says, it's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. God creates Eve. Now, we can, I think we can go too far with that and say, okay, Every man needs a woman. Every woman needs a man. That God is mandating that for man to be what he's supposed to be, for woman to be what she's supposed to be, that they have to be married. Because that leaves a lot of people out, right? Leaves a lot of people out in our church right now that are single. I don't think that God simply looks at it and says, man, Adam is lonely. He needs a wife. He's incomplete without a woman. Now, for reproduction to continue, right, there needed to be a woman. There needed to be a woman. God needed to create male and female. And he, he, he gives us the picture of what marriage is. But I think the bigger reason for God creating two is that there's relationship that is needed. And that can be experienced by everybody, whether you're single or married. So the implication isn't just that man needs a woman, woman needs a man. It's that Man and woman need other human beings in their life. So don't read this section as a single person and allow it to, to increase your groaning and desire for marriage. Now, it, it may do that, but don't look at it and think, man, like I've got to have somebody in my life or I'm not complete because God said it's not good for man to be alone. I believe the bigger implication is that it's not good for man or woman to be isolated individually. They're created for community and for relationship. And until God brings a spouse into your life, you enjoy that through your relationships with other believers. And then you get a more intimate picture of that when God brings a spouse into your life. And I'm praying diligently for our single people. It's part of what I've adopted as, our, my, as my family's prayer request for our goals as a church, right? We're praying for those big goals as a church. But as a part of that, I believe that God wants to raise up more families in our church to go and serve, go be a part of this church plant. And that necessitates some of our people getting married. And so I pray every night with AJ that God would bring spouses to our singles in our church. Because I realize if we're praying for this for five years, AJ's two now, he'll be seven. And he'll be very able to comprehend the prayers that we've been praying for five years. And I want AJ to be able to rejoice over the answers to God's prayers. That we've prayed on, uh, to him. So the, the big point here is not that man needs a spouse or that woman needs a spouse. It's that mankind needs other human beings to be in relationship with. He's created for relationship. She's created for relationship. Number three, responsibility. So we have resemblance. There are things that we share with God that we're very much alike there's relationship. God has given us that capacity that's very similar to him. And then responsibility, something, again, that's different from the animal kingdom. Man's task of ruling God's earth. Kind of a summary version of what God does here for man is that God commands, God, God commands man to reflect God, to fill the earth, and to rule the earth. That's the responsibility given to man. Reflect God, fill the earth, and rule the earth. Man is commanded to multiply on the earth. 
God doesn't just create man and woman to, to live as his sole human beings. The implication there is that they are to reproduce. Now, this is again where we're different than the animal kingdom, right? God fills the oceans with swarms of swarming creatures, fills the heavens with, with flying creatures. Now, they're told to reproduce, but they're already in existence with a lot of other birds and a lot of other fish. God creates one man and one woman. Again, it's a, a testimony to the, to the rule and authority that God's given to mankind. He says, I'm not going to fill this earth for you. You're to do it. You're my vice regents. You're my images. You're my representation. I want you to reproduce individuals who know me and serve me. God gives mankind the task of raising up image bearers, individuals that will worship him, that will serve him. God says, reproduce. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to even give you a head start on it like I've done these other animals. You two are responsible. Reproduce, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And there's so many similarities to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. When Jesus leaves and says, go, make disciples, teach them everything that I've commanded you. It's a, a, a reinstitution of what God gave Adam and Eve. Christ has come in and kind of cleaned up some things. He's made salvation possible. He's gathered some individuals that are his disciples. And he says, go reproduce yourselves. Make image bearers. And the, and, the, and the greatness of this, the goodness of this, is that because there's already people on this planet, we can, we can fulfill this whether we're married or not. Right? Adam and Eve, they only had one way to raise up image bearers. They had to, they had to reproduce with themselves. But now, as New Testament believers, all of us have the responsibility to reproduce ourselves, whether we're married or not. And that's not an admonition to have babies outside of marriage. That's, a, that's, a, that's an admonition that we need to be pouring ourselves into other individuals. We're to reproduce ourselves spiritually. We're to grow other people up spiritually. We're to leave a legacy, an imprint on other people. We're to reproduce ourselves. We're to teach people what Christ has commanded so that they become the type of image bearers they're supposed to be. That responsibility given to man to multiply the earth. An application question, kind of jumping ahead. How am I reproducing myself faithfully right now? How am I reproducing myself faithfully right now? What, what plans do you have this week to be pouring into somebody? And we won't use the term disciple because sometimes that... That conjures up um, uh, a structure and a method and a meeting time. So I'm not going to ask you, who are you discipling this week? Just who do you intend to invest in this week? It may be simply, I'm, I'm having lunch with somebody that, that I intend to encourage this week and to pour into this week. We don't meet regularly, but I'm doing it this week. Who are you intentionally trying to reproduce yourself in this week? This also has implications for the natural reproduction as well. Married couples have to have that conversation. When are we going to start having children? When are we going to start having children? And understanding that it's more than just do we want kids or do we not want kids. There's a biblical mandate to reproduce yourselves physically, not just to populate the earth anymore, but to raise up godly children that will stand in your place in your absence one day. Right? For Christianity to continue, we need more and more Christians to be born. There's such a huge responsibility on married couples to, to have children, 
to, to have um, as many children as God will bless them with sometimes. To, to, to have children and allow those children to be raised up to be God-fearers that will continue your spiritual legacy when you're gone. Man is commanded to fill the earth. He's tasked with filling the empty earth in the same way God filled the empty universe. He's commanded to subdue the earth. Man is to bring the earth into subjection so that it renders service to him. That's what subdue the earth means. It means to, to bring the earth into subjection so that it renders service for us. Make the earth's resources beneficial. This is an encouragement for technology advancements, for scientific advancements, right? We subdue the earth. We take the earth's resources that God has given us, right? Mankind doesn't create anything. Mankind uses what's already here, subdues it, makes it render service to us. Last night was a great example of that with Tyson being on J93.3 and, and communicating gospel truth. That's made possible because we have subdued the earth. We have increased our technology where we can communicate with people all around the world simultaneously. And Tyson can speak truth about Jesus coming back and his music can be played over the airwaves. And however many people that heard it last night can hear it because man has subjected the earth and subdued the earth. God has given us that privilege, that right, that responsibility to advance the earth, to advance technology. We understand it from a spiritual standpoint more now that we use the earth to proclaim Christ. And then lastly, man is commanded to rule over the earth. We see this example as Adam names the animals as he's called to cultivate the garden. All right, we're going to wrap up with this, the hope of a greater image. So we've talked about the image of God. We were created in the image of God. Sounds wonderful, sounds nice, and it was perfect when it was originally done. But the image that we experience now is not the image that we were created to, to, to be. Adam and Eve have, have marred the image, have tainted the image. Number one in your notes there, God created Adam in his image, but Adam failed to image properly. God created Adam in his image, but Adam failed to image properly. While we retain the image of God, it is now marred, distorted, and deformed. We still have the same responsibilities, we're just not capable of the same results. God's still given us the same responsibilities. We're supposed to reflect him, we're supposed to be a, an image of him, we're supposed to reflect his attributes. The only problem is that we don't do it the way that we're supposed to because of sin. So I'm supposed to be loving to everybody that I interact with, and I'm not. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. I can't fulfill my responsibilities anymore like I'm supposed to, but the expectations are still there. Be holy as I am holy. I just can't be anymore because of sin. My image is, is tainted and, and, and marred and deformed. It's like taking a copy. It's like making a copy. You can make as many copies as you want from the original, and they all look good. But you start taking a copy of a copy and making more copies, it starts to get more and more distorted. And the crispness and the clarity starts to decrease every copy you make from a copy. That's what happens with Adam. He, he's distorted, he sins, and then him and Eve have kids, and they're even more distorted. And we see that mankind just becomes more and more sinful. We see this in Genesis 5.1. When you understand the image of God and that we're created to be in the image of God, 
Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. There's already a breakdown there with the first children that start coming from Adam and Eve. They're after Adam's likeness. They still possess a quality of God's image, but we're now considered descendants of Adam. We're we're, we're children of Adam and his marred image. Romans 5, 12 through 19 highlights the fact that we all come from Adam, that we're guilty of his sin. By failing to image properly and rule over creation, we have subjected this earth to the rule of Satan, sin, and death. And this is the real tragedy of this. We were created to be in dominion over this earth. And we gave that right away when Adam and Eve sinned. Because now, moving forward, Satan is considered the ruler of this earth. Christ refers to him that way. He's the prince of the uh, principalities and the power of the air. That, that he's in control of this earth. Now, obviously, he also is in subjection to God's sovereignty. But we see sin reigning. We see death reigning. We see Satan reigning in our place. And that's the tragedy of what happens here when Adam and Eve sin, is that we give some of that authority away. Sin reigns, death reigns. And this is where the glory of Christ comes in. Number two, God sent Christ as the perfect image, and he reclaims the dominion lost by man. God sent Christ as the perfect image, and he reclaims the dominion lost by man. Right? So Adam failed, and everybody that's produced from Adam is a failure. Christ comes as the perfect man. The Bible calls him the perfect image, the exact imprint of God's nature. And now everybody that comes from Christ spiritually, everyone that's reborn spiritually possesses the image of Christ now. And we're being remade and renewed, the Bible tells us. We're putting off the old man. We're putting on the new man. That's the glory of what we see here. Adam and Eve were created in God's image, and they failed to do it. They failed to take dominion of the earth like they were supposed to. They gave it away to Satan and sin and death. And Christ comes in to fix it now. Christ comes in to rule and reign over everything. And that's what we see in the New Testament, that he's subjecting everything under his feet the way that Adam was supposed to. And that final victory over death is coming in the future when he subjects everything to himself. He's reclaiming that dominion for us. Christ images properly by being perfectly obedient to the Father. He's the perfect God-man. He rules and reigns by establishing a kingdom of dominion forever. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was put out to pasture for a while because he was arrogant and prideful. And when he's brought back, he makes a confession about this coming kingdom. In, Deuteron- or in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. 
and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You go on to Daniel 7, Daniel looks into the future and sees this, sees this happening. Verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. You skip down to um, verse 13. Then I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. The Bible encourages us in places like... um, Romans 6:14, Psalms 19:13, Psalm 119:133. These are places where we're told not to let sin have dominion over us. That we're not to give ourselves to sin. Romans 6 promises that as Christians, we don't have to let sin rule and reign over us anymore. It goes back to that idea, we're supposed to rule and reign over creation, not letting creation rule and reign over us. Any type of addiction or any type of activity that we're giving ourselves to constantly, enslaved to, it's not what it's intended to be. Creation should never be ruling over us. We were created to rule over it, and Christ is coming to give that back to us. Number three, God has promised to restore our full image when Christ is once again sent to earth. Right? That's the promise. That's the, that's the comfort. That's the encouragement. That we have glorified bodies. We have a glorified state coming to us when Jesus Christ returns. Romans 8, 29. We're destined for this, right? For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, Genesis 1 is so important to everything that we're going to try to do as a church because we're calling people to what they were supposed to be. They're supposed to be the image of God reminding them and showing them that they can't be that and showing them that their only hope is in Christ who comes to make us into the image of him. That's what we point people to, the gospel contained here in Genesis 1, that we were created to be in the image of God, we failed, we can do nothing to fix it, and that only Christ coming back can restore us to the image that God had originally given to us. 1 Corinthians 15, 48 and 49. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Right now we bear the image of Adam and Eve. And that is being recreated in us. Our sanctification, our daily fight with sin Let's read it from my notes. Our fight against sin and pursuit of sanctification is an expression of our desire to return to our rightful image. Let me say that again. You may want to write that down. Our fight against sin and pursuit of sanctification is an expression of our desire to return to our rightful image. So I told you this had implications for this week. Every day that you wake up this week, you're called to fight sin and pursue sanctification, right? God tells us in in, in Thessalonians that his will for our life is our sanctification. 
That's for your life as a whole, but that's for your life tomorrow on a Monday when you wake up and you're dragging a little bit because it's Monday. You're to fight sin and you're to pursue sanctification. Why? Because you're not what you're supposed to be. You're not what you were created to be. And by fighting sin and pursuing Christ, you're expressing a desire to go back to what you're supposed to be. You're submitting to the truth of Scripture and saying, I'm supposed to be the image of God. I'm supposed to reflect his attributes. And I do a crummy job of that a lot of times because I'm sinful. And so I want to fight sin and I want the Holy Spirit to move and work in me so that I can be the type of image that I'm supposed to be. Colossians 3, 1 through 17 would be a great passage to look at this week as a reminder of that. All right, two questions for application. That was Colossians 3, 1 through 17. I was like, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Our fight against sin and pursuit of sanctification now is an expression of our desire to return to our rightful image. That means when I get up and fight sin tomorrow, what I'm saying is I want Jesus to come back. I want Jesus to come back so that I don't have to fight anymore, so that he can just do what I desire for him to do in my life. And that's make me into his image. But until he comes, I'm going to labor for it and fight for it and allow the Holy Spirit to work in me and through me, moving me in that direction. All right, two questions of application. Number one, are you fighting sin responsibly? Okay, because that's your application for today. Are you fighting sin responsibly? You were created to be in God's image. You've unfortunately been born into a tainted version of that. What are you doing through the Holy Spirit's power? So we don't want to emphasize man's job in this, but what are you doing to fight sin responsibly, moving yourself closer to that original image? And then number two, are you reproducing yourself obediently? All right, the Christian life's not just about you. You were created to be in relationship. You were created to reproduce yourself. So... Fight sin. Are you doing that? Are you, are you pushing yourself back into the, the, to the direction of the image of God that you're supposed to be? And number two, are you bringing anybody with you? Are you reproducing yourself in somebody? Are you pouring into somebody? You may be single. You may be married. Are you reproducing spiritually in the life of somebody else? This week. This week. What is your plan to reproduce yourself? To, to make some type of lasting imprint on somebody and moving them towards this goal as well i want to direct everyone that has their bible with them today to psalm 98 we're going to close our service like we've done the last couple of weeks and that's reflecting on a psalm instead of having the band come up and lead us in a song we're going to simply allow divine inspired lyrics to close us out for today Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise 
before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you this morning that you have revealed your righteousness to us. Father, we we recognize that in going back to the very beginning of creation that you had you had ordained mankind to be in your image and we failed you. And Father, we come from a long line of failures. And Father, we recognize that the original copy is tainted. And there's nothing that we can do to fix ourselves. And so, Father, we praise you and thank you that over and over again in the New Testament, you proclaim to us that Jesus is the perfect image of God. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to be everything that we're incapable of being. Father, we thank you for his perfect life. His perfect imaging of you. God, we see glimpses of what we can be when he comes back. And we long for that and we anticipate that. And God, I pray that as we wait, God, that you would increase our desire for Jesus to come back. And that we would demonstrate that desire by fighting sin intentionally this week. God, protect us from allowing creation to have dominion over us. God, protect us from elevating creation to the status of being your image. God, protect us from subjecting ourselves to anything that would take our attention off of you this week. God, I pray that we would fight sin responsibly as we wait for sin and death to be completely subjected to Christ. Father, I pray that you would instill in us a desire to look beyond our own life and our own schedule this week. God, that we would examine ourselves and how we are trying to reproduce ourselves. And Father, if we are stagnant in that, God, I pray that you would instill a desire in us to pour into other people. That as we strive to pursue Christ, that we would bring others along with us that we would push people in the direction of seeing Christ in all his glory. God, give us wisdom and insight to know how to do that this week on a small scale, intentionally seeking somebody out to pour into this week, to invest in this week, someone who is in need of spiritual maturity that we can help pass along to them. May you give us those opportunities, that we would seize those opportunities this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.